Last week, I began a short two-part series entitled, Acting in the Spirit of Faith. And the title of the message last time was, The Spirit of Faith. And then I said to you, we're going to go on to have a look at something else, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not just about knowing how to get a hold of the Scripture, it's also learning how to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and you put these two together, and what you've really got is wisdom. And to walk by faith requires that we walk in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, is wisdom is available, because the Spirit of God who lives in us is the Spirit of wisdom. And like last time, we're going to have a look at, in, a, in a while as how that worked out in the life of Jesus, not just in the high moments of great displays of power, but in his wilderness experience in which he was tempted by the devil and overcame Satan by the word of God, by the spirit of God, and by the spirit of wisdom. So I'd like you to turn to James chapter 1, James chapter 1 verses 2 through 8 read like this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How do we act in the spirit of faith? Where does wisdom fit in? Let me put it to you like this. How many times have you been in a situation where you were a little bit unsure of what was happening? Your circumstances, uh, or maybe a word that you've been given, and you say, I'm not so sure whether this is me, or whether this is God, or whether this is the devil. Have you ever been confused like that? <laughs> we need wisdom. Let's suppose that you've been putting in for a pay rise or putting in for a promotion at work. And you believe that that's a kind of good thing to be looking for. And you kind of believe that God wants you to stay with that company and in that position of employment. Uh, and yet it's not coming around. And you say, what's happening here? God, are you trying to tell me something? Is it time for me to move on? Or maybe you think, devil, I know you're interfering with my blessing. Devil, you are a thief, a robber, a liar, and a destroyer, and I trample on you in the name of Jesus. Or maybe you are a little more reflected and think, well, why am I really wanting all this stuff? Is it all about me, Lord? I haven't really asked you about it. We need wisdom. Sometimes to discern what to do in situations, particularly difficult situations. Now, I'm going to help you with that today. Because wisdom is the principal thing, as we shall see in a moment. When we learn to act in the spirit of faith, we know, first of all, that faith is not some kind of mechanical arrangement with God. When you go to a slot machine and you 
you fiddle around, you see if you've got the right kind of change, and you kind of have a certain expectation that if you put the right stuff in and press the right button, you get the right stuff back. Now, I know it doesn't always work that way. I mean, how many of you have seen people smashing <laughs> a vending machine saying, come out in the name of Jesus? But that's how it's supposed to work. But it isn't ever supposed to work like that with God. God is not a mechanical slot machine. He's not some kind of arrangement whereby if we do our stuff, he'll do his stuff. Faith is about walking with God. And it's not as if we can just simply select the right scripture and put the right scripture in the right slot and we get what we want. It doesn't work that way. Because faith really is about living for God. It's not about getting things from God. And when you stand on the word of faith, which is a good thing to do, learn also to surrender to the spirit of faith. Now that takes wisdom. We're going to see how Jesus handled this and is a great example of this in the story of the temptation in a moment. He approached everything with the wisdom of the Father. And uh, we know that that wisdom surpasses knowledge. Have you noticed that? Some people may be very young and have a lot of knowledge, but not much wisdom. But immaturity is impossible without wisdom. In fact, really, almost a definition of maturity is wisdom itself. You can know the Scriptures, but it takes the wisdom of God and of the Spirit to walk in the truths of the Word of God. You can be very sure about the will of God, and you can even see demonstrations of the power of God happening all around you, but only wisdom allows you to pursue God for Himself and to follow His ways. And so wisdom is not just about you know, intellectual brilliance, cleverness, or how to be pretty savvy. It's a moral and spiritual quality given to us by the Holy Spirit, and it comes by revelation. And when we see it work in Jesus' life, don't just look at an example that you have to try and attain to. Realize that the same Jesus who overcame Satan in the wilderness is the same Jesus who lives in you. So he will show you, he will guide you in his wisdom. Ephesians 1 verse 17 records a very important prayer that uh, the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers, and it's so relevant to us today. He, he prayed, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. NIV says, so that you may know Him better. The wisdom of God leads us into a closer relationship with Christ, leads us into a greater understanding of what it means to partner with Christ, to keep the rhythm of the Holy Spirit, not to rush ahead or to lag behind. So it's very clear that wisdom involves more than knowledge, but we also need to see that wisdom is always about the bigger picture, the bigger picture. We must learn to marry confident faith with submissive wisdom of the Spirit. Uh, we, we always have got to rise up. In the wilderness, Jesus was rising up against the enemy. I don't think it was just that the Holy Spirit sent him out in order to be tempted and to undergo something. 
The Spirit sent him out into the wilderness to serve notice on the devil. Jesus was active. He was positive. He was advancing the kingdom of God. It wasn't just some passive form of suffering. He was rising up within himself against the enemy in difficult circumstances. Now, we need to rise up in every circumstance. If it's a difficult circumstance, we need to rise up. But wisdom will tell us in what way to rise up. Holy Spirit can show us in this circumstance, I want you to rise up because I'm going to deliver you out of it. The same Holy Spirit might say, in this circumstance, I'm going to deliver you through it. So it's either deliverance or endurance, and it takes wisdom to know the difference. I think that's what James was talking about when he says, if you lack wisdom when you're going through a difficult time, ask God and he will show you. He will help you discern what the Father is doing so that you can cooperate with his purposes to build the bigger picture. Knowledge will give you insights into detail, but only wisdom will give you a view of the big picture. Very recently, uh, I had a, had a fit of artistic um, desire, and so I, I canceled the afternoon's work and took a small group from the senior minister's office, and we went to the uh, Tate Britain Museum, and we saw the exhibition of late works by Turner, one of the best British painters, and, and so it was interesting to see various members of staff breaking into new levels of creativity, but I had a good time anyway. And one of the things that you see with Turner's work and with many artists is that when you're right close up, you might see a little detail, it looks like a little blob of paint, and you wonder, what is that doing? And when you step back, suddenly it all comes together in the big picture. In this electronic age, we know about pixelation and pixels, don't we? So you, you, you have a look at a, a, a photograph, which is a digital picture, and if you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in, soon you just see some blurry pixels and you have no idea what they mean. But when you draw back and when you have a look at the whole picture and zoom away, then you see... That little collection of pixels is part of something bigger. So wisdom is always about seeing the bigger picture. Knowledge will give us some facts, but only wisdom allows us to see the bigger picture. And so this is the kind of wisdom we need when we're going through tough times. To say, God, what are you doing here? What is the big picture right here and now? If I look at the detail, I would like to change some stuff. But when God gives you the bigger picture, you say, no, I must go through this because you're working something wonderful in my life. So the Bible says that wisdom is the principal thing. It's wonderful when we actually focus on Bible priorities. If you have a look at Proverbs 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. I wonder how many of us rolled out of bed I did, but then I knew what I was preaching about. Roll out of bed and say, give me wisdom today. <laughs> give me wisdom today. And uh, R.T. Kendall's written this great book on wisdom, and I recommend it, and he'll be with us, as you know, very, very shortly. R.T. supports, we support each other in prayer, and every single day I ask for R.T., please pray one thing for me, please pray for a double portion of wisdom. Therefore get wisdom, and in all your getting, get understanding. Exalt her wisdom, and she will bring you honor when you embrace her. We should be desiring wisdom above all things, and ultimately wisdom is none other than Jesus, isn't it? 
So when we grow in wisdom, something happens to us inside. We're no longer children. We're mature. Our attitude changes, and we become less and less demanding. And it's very easy to have a demanding spirit and sugarcoat it with spirituality, as we shall see in a moment. But wisdom is all about trusting in God, in His purposes, in, in His goodness, not trying to work things out for ourselves or depending on what we feel inside. Now then in Proverbs 28 verse 26 it says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. So if you're going to be wise, don't trust in your own heart. The second part of the verse goes on to say, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Sometimes it's delivered, being delivered out of the circumstances, and we get great, wonderful answers to prayer. Sometimes we are delivered through the circumstances. Wisdom is very, very important. When the Bible says don't trust in your heart, what kind of heart is he talking about? He's talking about that egotistical me, me, me heart. Let me talk about me for a moment, and then when I feel the heat's on, I'll talk about the rest of you, because we're, the, we're just the same. I know that what is closest to my heart, the heart of Colin Dye, is Colin Dye. Don't look at me like that. You're just the same. We are the most important person in our life, in our heart, until the Holy Spirit comes and knocks us off the pedestal, and it suddenly becomes all about Jesus. I, I kind of find that... I want to get what I want, what I think best. And this can actually spill over into our relationship with God and become kind of demanding from God, and uh, especially when we think we've got good grounds to do so. And we say, this is what I want, it's good for me, and it's in your word. Haven't you read this promise? Here we are, Jesus, get on with it. The question is, how can we ask God with confidence, knowing His promises, without also becoming demanding? And that's a very delicate balance. It takes wisdom to walk that tightrope in the spiritual life. Because sometimes expecting something from God can become very close to demanding something from God. And we demand because we think we're entitled to it. And it's very easy to rationalize our desires, making them demands, by quoting God's promises. And we shall see that Jesus, in at least two of the three temptations, had a perfect word from God that he could act on and obey the devil. Interesting. That's why we need wisdom. One of the big things we have to think about is, is how we approach God in prayer. James tackles this in another part of his letter, James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. James 4, verses 2 and 3. James says, you lust and do not have. Now, the word lust automatically pictures something in our mind, but the word really means desire, to desire something strongly. So you desire something strongly, and you don't get it. So what do you do? He says, virtually, you do whatever it takes to get what you want. And he puts it in very strong terms. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. 
He's calling it what it is. Don't forget, murder isn't just about a physical thing. It's about being prepared to get rid of anybody, to trample on anybody, offend, hurt, destroy anybody to get what you want because you have a desire. And this desire is so strong, you haven't got it, so you go for it in your own way. James goes on to say, you fight and war, yet you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. It's wonderful here. God is saying, listen, if you, if you desire something, by all means, ask me. And I think we should argue less and pray more. But it's not just about asking and getting. It's about our motivation. Asking God for something, desiring something, can lead us into difficulty because he says, You ask and you do not get. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't get. Why? Because of your motives. Because you have this demandingness. God, give me. Fill my needs. Give me what I want. You're supposed to be my God. You're supposed to be on my side. Come on, God. Give me. Give me. Give me. And here are some give me promises. And the Bible says here that When you do that, you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures, your own desires. And it's very easy to loosely baptize modern selfishness, hedonism, pleasure, and say, okay, God, you exist for me, and I've been so good as to let you into my life, so now you better sort my life out, which means give me what I want. So the question is, how do you know the difference between a genuine, pure-hearted request and a demand dressed up in nice spiritual language? Well, in our human relationships, there's a very easy way of observing this. Somebody comes to you and asks very nicely, asks for something, and pretend it's just a request, just a request. If you say no even hopefully for good reasons. Watch their reaction. Sometimes they turn on you like a rottweiler. Uh, And you realize that they weren't asking in a genuine spirit of request. They were actually demanding. They were seeking either to manipulate you or to overpower you to give them something that they are not going to accept no for an answer. When we walk in the spirit of wisdom, we won't be like that. And above all, we will stop misusing Scripture. I want to make a statement I want you to take in context. You do not know the will of God from Scripture verses alone. Now listen carefully. If you quoted that out of context, it would be quite wrong. Because of course the will of God is revealed in Scripture. But you do not get to the heart of God's will by taking Scripture verses and using them. You must know the context of the verse. And you must know the context of the verse in the passage. And the context of the passage in the chapter. And the context of the chapter in the book. And the context in the book in the whole of the Bible. You've got to know the total story of God. So you say, well, how do I find that out? Well, you heard already this morning, join up to IBIOL. (laughs) Well, make sure you attend the 5 o'clock teaching service. Or make sure you sign up to some of the, of the courses that we do which are broken down in, in ways that will help you with your schedule 
And of course, get to know God for yourself. Get to know the Bible for yourself. Get to know the whole story. Get to know the whole picture. Get to know how it all ends up. It all ends up where everything is all God's blessings. Everything that he's promised in various forms and given us certain foretastes in this life end up in the future. That's where we're heading. It all ends up there in the glory of God. Hallelujah. In other words, when you find a scripture that seems to suit you, a scripture that you want for your life, ask God for wisdom. Say, Holy Spirit, where does this fit in to what you're doing in my life? How does this work in terms of your timing, your season, how you are working in my life? And where does this fit in in the overall work and plan in my life? The fulfillment of any specific promise in the Word of God must always fit into the greater purpose of God and the plan of God for my life. We need wisdom for this. And we see how Jesus operated in the spirit of wisdom in the temptation story. We know straight away from our knowledge of that passage and also from the message last time that Jesus certainly used the word of God. Did you notice that as we read and you recollect? Jesus countered the enemy's temptation three times with it is written, it is written, it is written, the word of God. But he also spoke in the spirit of faith. It wasn't just in the word of faith. The spirit of faith means using God's word according to the will and the mind and the energy of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to see that there's another dimension to this. That's the dimension of wisdom. Jesus operated in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So, James says, the testing of your faith produces something. It produces patience. That, it's that ability to keep on going when things are tough, where God doesn't appear to be answering our prayers. He doesn't seem to give us permission and authority to speak to our circumstances and see them immediately resolve into something that satisfies us. Rather, James says, let patience have its perfect work. But the testing of your faith produces something. So we need to ask for wisdom. God, show me what are you doing here? What are you seeking to produce in me? What's your purpose here? And that's where wisdom comes in. Knowing how to walk in faith during a test or a trial. Making sure that we are letting patience have its perfect work. So we are learning what God wants us to learn. Enduring what God calls us to endure. So that our faith which is being tested may grow and develop. And our immature childish demandingness can be completely dealt with. And we learn to trust God whatever the situation also to learn how to stand up and fight well, standing on the Word of God, but using the Word of God with wisdom so that we discern the bigger picture and say, God, let your will be operating here. And how to use Scripture, not for our own ends, our own satisfaction, but to use Scripture for God's purpose that He may be glorified. When we endure in a time of trial, it means that we've learned the wisdom of self-control. Not to demand for instant relief 
or immediate gratification for what we want, as if our happiness was more important than our holiness. The glory of God is in view as we allow him to paint into our lives in line with his bigger picture. And we come to Jesus in this temptation story, and indeed throughout all of the New Testament, we never see Jesus demanding his Father. Father, have you forgotten who I am? I'm your beloved son. You told me I'm your well-pleased. Now it's about time I had a bit of this, please. And in the temptation story, did you notice Jesus didn't even ask the Father for anything. But he acted in the wisdom of the Spirit, knowing with the Father's plan, armed with the Word, he surrendered to that plan and flowed with the Father's greater purposes. Above all, Jesus didn't act hastily on the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Uh, some people were giving a testimony in a certain part of Marseille, which was heavily an immigrant area, heavily immigrant, and um, they were talking about Jesus, and the people around were incensed. And a little girl, about 12 years old, came out with some bleach, pure bleach, and say, drink this, because in your Bible it says, no deadly thing shall touch you. Come on, let's see. And the person said, yeah, the Bible also says, don't test the Lord your God. Can you imagine how foolish it would be without asking God, is this how you're going to manifest right now? Is this Because if you d drink bleach without the Holy Spirit, you'll be more than clean inside. <laughs> and so often, the devil tries to promote us and prompt us to act foolishly, unwisely, even on clear words of Scripture. Clear words of Scripture. And uh, often it's about acting hastily. And every single one of these temptations was about Jesus getting something which was due him ahead of time. Everything that Satan tempted him to do was Jesus right as the Son of God, making the stones bread. He had a right to be fed after 40 days of fasting. His body was now in a medical condition of, of, of starvation, and the body was sending very strong signals, eat, 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 or you're going to die. Every temptation Jesus could have justified but he said, I will not run ahead of the Father's purposes. Every scripture has its timing to be fulfilled. And we often go so far wrong when we try to get ahead of time everything that God has for us. And ultimately, the greatest patience of all is the patience to know the difference between now and then. Now, we don't have everything. We have Christ, now we have testing. Now we, are, we live in a broken world, but then we will live in the most glorious manifestation of the kingdom of God. There's an old hymn we used to sing, now the cross and conflict, then the perfect day. 
So now and then we get mixed up between now and then. And that's a very, very big distinction. But even so, even in the outworking of the blessings that God has lined up for you to enjoy and experience on this earth, if you have an immature, unwise way of going about it, you'll be grab, 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 now, 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 Lord. And your Holy Spirit says, no, I want you to trust in the Father's timing. Surrender to the Father's way of achieving this final outcome. Get to know God's timetable. Now the first temptation, you will recall, first temptation was, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, because you're hungry and you deserve to eat. Especially you, the Son of God, make these stones bread. Do you know what? There was a revelation that Jesus had access to that could have justified him to do the very same thing. It's a revelation. It was soon to be a scripture. In Matthew 7, verses 9 and 11, we read about it. Do you remember this part in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, What man is there among you who, if he asks, his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Everybody says, No, no, if my son asks for bread, I wouldn't give him a stone. No, no, no. Then halfway through verse 11, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus could have said, Father, remember that revelation about fathers and stone and bread and all that? Remember that? And, you know, it's, you know Father's going to give his son bread, surely not a stone. Uh, and, and if an earthly father will not give stones instead of bread, surely my heavenly father will give me bread instead of stones. He could have worked that way. And it's so easy for us to twist scripture around our own desires, especially when those desires appear to be so legitimate. Father, don't you want me to eat? I've been here for 40 days, 40 nights, and you know they might not discover yet until the whatever century, but at this particular point, there's a medical reaction, a biological reaction takes place. Father, 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 this is a legitimate way. I'm only helping you. I'm just being obedient to you, and I'm helping you fulfill your promise, Lord. Here we are. Thank you, Father. He didn't go that way because he refused to yield to a temptation despite a deeply felt need, even a life-threatening need, and he trusted God instead. Now, very often our needs are not really nearly as life-threatening as we think. Ah, better. God, if you don't give me a husband, if you don't give me a wife, if you don't give me kids, if you don't give me a pay rise, I'm going to die. It's terrible. I'm going to live without this. I can't live without this. Be careful. Because that's the arch spirit of demandingness. And it's a complete false assumption that God exists for me. God is going, his number one priority is to fill me and make me happy because he's my heavenly dad. Wisdom will take us away from that. The second temptation was when the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down because there are some great scriptures that you can use right now Remember where it says, he shall give his angels charge over you, and they will bear you up in their hands and not even let you dash your foot against a stone. You are not even going to stub your toe. This is the promise. And do you know what? 
It's for sons of God. And it's for you, son of God. It was a real scripture. And that scripture is real. God is the God who protects us. And in the life of Jesus, he was protected time and again. Nobody could touch him until it was the Father's time. Nobody could get near him. They came to arrest him. They even tried to throw him over a cliff. He just walked through them all. Amazing. Because the Father was protecting him. And even when it was time for him to be delivered unto the death of the cross, even that was by the Father's arrangement because the Bible says, and God fulfilled it, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. God delivered him out from among the dead. So this was a very real promise, but Jesus knew that it was not the Father's timing, not the Father's way, in spite of this deep desire that he should manifest himself to Israel. It was not the Father's will that this scripture should be fulfilled in this way at that time. Only wisdom would have told him that. More than that, he wouldn't even presume on the Father to the point of putting him to the test. We put God to the test when we move out beyond his, his will. And, and as the saying goes, go where angels fear to tread. No angel is going to come and rescue you when you fear that the angel is not going to be there. And he does so time and time again in Scripture, warning us against rushing ahead of God. And without wisdom, we can do that. We can do that. I remember many years ago, I was sitting at the back of the church as a church member, and God spoke to me, and he showed me all the things that he wanted me to do for him, and I had visions of tremendous stuff, and he said, the time is now. And I thought, great, now means now. But now, my now and God's now somehow don't match. And I rushed out and was stupid, absolutely stupid. I had to come back and take my place again in humility and say, I forgot one thing, God. When? When? The call is now. But how has that worked out in my life? And I had to learn that the hard way. But God taught me. Most of all, Jesus would not use his power independently of the Father's purposes. To do that is presumption. Testing God in every situation is presumption. Except, I can see three times in the scripture when God invited us to test him. When God does that, that's a different matter. When we decide we're going to test God, that's not good. But when God says... I invite you to test me. And I, I see maybe there are more cases, but I see easily three cases when God said, now is the time, I want you to test me. The first one is found in Psalm 34 verse 8, when God wants us to test him by experiencing him. And here's the verse, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. This is testing God to see if he is who he claims to be and is as if he is really enough. Every invitation that God says, test me, it's all about proving that God is enough. That all he ever promises is himself and he is enough. It's not that life should go well for me. It's not that I get everything that I want, but that Jesus is enough. And the Bible says, see, try it and see, taste me and see how satisfying I am. Wonderful way 
of testing God. He invited us to do it. And it's all about showing us that God is enough, that we don't need all the other stuff that we think we can't live without. The second one, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it's about tithing. Here is the, is the test of investing in the kingdom. Malachi 3 verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And test me now. Try me now in this. Just try me. Come on, try me. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, there will not be enough room to receive it. Wow. The passage says, you know when you, when you withhold what I've asked you to do to invest in my kingdom, you are robbing me. But also, he's also very clearly, clearly saying, not only are you robbing me, which is the worst thing, you are robbing yourself. So try me, test me, invest in the things of God. Not just money, invest your time, invest your talents, invest your energy, invest your love, your devotion, and your money, and you will see something. Something will happen to you. You will see what you most value, and your eyes will be upon that, and your relationship with me will grow because you're doing this unto me. You're not giving in order to get, but you're giving and investing in order to discover the true riches and the true wealth for your life. Knowing me and having God is the best. It's the most rewarding experience of all. And surely out of that, blessings will follow as God chooses, not as we demand. Then the final test that I read is in Romans 12 verse 2. Proving that his will is best. So whether it is an experience in God or investing in the kingdom or obeying his will, it is all about proving one thing. God is enough. He's the only one who can satisfy. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in this way you may prove something. You may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what the Bible is saying here is that you can actually prove that God's way is the best. How? By doing it and finding out for yourself. First of all, you have to have that decision that says, I'm going to say no to my own pleasures. I'm going to say no to my own satisfaction. I'm not going to sit on some fast, some hunger strike until God gives me what I want. I'm going to flow with God's will. I'm going to step out in God's will. I'm going to obey God. And then when you do that, you are so glad you did after a while. Because the truth is, to begin with, it don't feel very good. Because it's about saying no to those fleshly desires, that kind of stuff that says, I want to be satisfied now. I want present satisfaction. Give me happiness now. Holiness can wait. We're all going to heaven anyway. <laughs> God says, no, 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 no. If you do this, you, to begin with, it might not seem pleasant. It may even seem painful. But after a while, something happens and you say, do you know, I'm so glad I obeyed God. I'm so glad I did what God told me because now I can prove and I can demonstrate that God's will is good. It's acceptable and it's perfect that God's way is the best. Try me, God says. Try me. 
So there is a right way of testing God, but it's only when he invites, and it's along the same line, saying no to the devil, yes to God, is all about believing that he is enough. And he's wise enough to give us exactly what we want, or exactly what we need at the right time, not what we want, but exactly what we need at the right time, and he's working according to a higher agenda. One of the great things about the Bible is it's so full of amazing promises. And I, I really do believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he made all those, he secured all those promises for us. In fact, it's so easy to be blessed by God because he's done it anyway. It's so easy to receive some good thing from God because his heart is to give and Jesus has secured it on the cross. So much so that if it appears that he is withholding even one little blessing, one little little bitty blessing, we can always rejoice and say, wow, this is amazing. Why? You asked and you didn't receive. Why is that amazing? Because God is so willing to say yes that if it looks like there's something else happening, then it is a promise that God is up to something bigger and better and more glorious than if he just said yes, 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 yes. Amen and amen. The third temptation. Bow down and worship me, the devil says, and I'll give you all the kingdoms in the world and all their glory. Again, this was a temptation to get ahead of the plan of God. To enter, take a shortcut, go this way and you'll get there quicker. You cannot bypass the life that God has mapped for you. You cannot make a decision, say, it's easy, this is an easy way, there's no easy way. It's a shortcut to disaster because you can't bypass the cross to get the crown. That's what Satan was saying. You just worship me, then you get all this stuff and you don't have to go to the cross and all the people that you love and the people you came to save, they'll they'll go to hell, but you'll be okay. Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to worship God whatever it costs me. I'm going to go God's way because God is my passion. The Father is my passion. And I will show the world how much I love the Father. I'm going to do this because he's called me to do this. We've agreed this. This is the plan. This is the program. And there's no way that I will try to get the crown without the cross. The Bible says that Jesus suffered for us in the flesh. But that we must also arm ourselves with the same attitude and follow him by taking up our cross. 1 Peter 4 verse 1, Peter uses great logic when he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Interesting. Could it be that one of the main ways that God uses suffering in our lives is to wean us off the immature spirit of demandingness where we'll only follow him when all is well with our circumstances? 
or that we should judge how spiritual we are by the size of our bank account and the level of our success in society, or how good we feel about ourselves or our lot in life. Is it that sometimes God will do, can only do one, do this one way, sometimes some, certain things only one way, and that is by allowing us to feel the pain? Sometimes in difficult, suffering circumstances, to shape Christ in us because he's shown us the way, sometimes. I'm not saying that we should look for suffering, but we certainly should have the wisdom to say, God, this suffering, what are you saying to me about this? I will trust you. I want patience to have its perfect work. So the spirit of faith means the Holy Spirit teaches us how to use the word in the wisdom of God. Not in order to fulfill our own desires and to get immediate satisfaction, what we want. But when we do that like Jesus, we do two things. Number one, we frustrate the plan of the devil. It's our way of destroying the devil. We frustrate the plan of the devil when we resist temptations to get everything now and trust God and say, God, I know I trust you enough. Because whatever happens here, it doesn't measure your love because my, your love isn't measured by circumstances. Your love is measured by the cross. This is how we know love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. I look to the cross when I want a revelation of love. I don't look to my bank account. I don't look to blessings. And every blessing that I receive, I don't cling to it. I don't hold on to it as if it was, you know, a life and death matter. Because what God has for us is such an ocean of blessing in the future life that every good thing, even the best things we could ever have is like a drop in that ocean that we could easily do without by comparison to the glory that is yet to be revealed. And if in any way of any apparent withholding of those little drops of blessing somehow works in me a greater work of glory, works in me a greater conformity to Christ. I say, so be it, because it's, it's all about you. It's your plan. It's your program. Amen and amen. amen. So we, first of all, frustrate the plan of the devil. And secondly, we promote the purpose of God. And that's what we're here for. Because the more we surrender to this, the more Christ is revealed in us and the more authentic we become to our non-believing world. Any religion, any philosophy could boast about, look how happy I am. Is it about happiness? Look how happy I am. Look how rich I am. Look how successful I am. And sometimes in worldly terms, you can get there quicker if you're prepared to use worldly methods. Bend the rules. Cheat here. Trample on there kill off your opposition, metaphorically speaking, though even sometimes that happens literally, of course. But no, no, no. If God isn't given it, I don't want it. If God isn't given it, I don't want it. I'll wait for him. As Jesus said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have breakfast with you, devil. I'm going to breakfast with my father. Amen. At the very next verse, at the end of these temptations, the Bible says, and angels came and ministered to him in his weakness, in his denial of self, in his choice of selecting the Father's will, in his use of Scripture, wisdom, and the Spirit. The Father was blessed, and the Father was pleased. 
And in that way, we reflect the nature of God in a way that's utterly unique to our lives, spiritual lives as Christians. And when the world sees that, the world says, I want what you have.